Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Hi, ho and our storyteller, TJ2, the deuce. Howdy! I feel like we were just talking about this subject yesterday. Yes, but it bears repeating. <laughs> yeah, I know, Tom, Tom, Tom just flies. It, it really does feel like we, uh, by only, by only uh, last night, we convened to record the first episode of this series. <laughs> yep. And here we are. But again. I think we can all agree this subject could not be contained in a single episode. There's no way you could talk about one of the greatest guitar players of all time in one episode. That is true. That's Absolutely true. correct. And um, kind of the disclaimer we often throw out, but it's especially applicable in an episode like this. Eddie Van Halen had a 40-plus year career. He's widely considered one of the greatest and most influential musicians to ever live. Even a four-part episode is going to be kind of superficial. There's, and, there's no way on God's green earth that we can paint a full picture of his his life and career and legacy, even in a 10-part episode. And I should say this right now, just based on what you guys told me prior to the episode, if you have little ones in the car, <laughs> this maybe is not the best episode to listen to with them around. I understand it's going to be very salacious. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, Part one was a little deeper and more serious than I had anticipated when I started doing research for it. Part two, uh, which we're about to dive into on the great Eddie Van Halen, 
contains lots of cocaine and naked people. So I, I clean the language up as much as I can. <laughs> Even so, some of the themes are very adult. But that's that's like trying to make WAP or the WAP that whatever that song is. Oh, edit, uh, edit, edit it for radio. So it's like when yeah. they they showed the it's Big Lebowski like, on network TV, and I think the whole thing was maybe an hour. <laughs> the, that's like one time I watched I watched uh, on like a UHF channel. Uh, LD might remember it was channel 46 or 40 that we could pick up when we were yes. growing up. One Sunday afternoon, they showed Pulp Fiction, <laughs> <laughs> which may have been the most foolhardy effort in the history of broadcasting. Oh, I love it when they try to show Scarface. Oh, God, it's awesome. That's it's just why don't don't just stop. Stop. We And it ends up looking like a 20 minute infomercial for Toot. Basically. Yeah, maybe. by the time you cut everything else out it's just it's a it's an infomercial for white powder that lasts about 25 minutes here is my senior thesis on, oh, yes. on your back yeah the the other thing you have to remember about van halen we are very accustomed now to celebrities sharing every single aspect of their life with us on social media and and, and such as that up to and including you know, like what they ate for breakfast and stuff. I don't give a damn that you ate a bagel, Madonna, or whatever, <laughs> okay? But, you know, this is, Van Halen was very much in the Led Zeppelin mold of, they didn't do a, a lot of press. They did press when they had an album coming out or they had a tour. So a lot of the stories that you get and the pictures that are painted often have to be by somebody who was not in the band themselves or it, or not a longtime member of the band. I'll put it that way. Hmm. Obviously, Sammy Hagar wrote a book after he left the band. David Lee Roth wrote one. For, former managers and people such as that. And there, you know, people and Valerie Bertinelli wrote one. But so you depend on a lot of you do depend on a lot of second. Not I don't want to say secondhand because people were there, but it's not coming from Eddie and Alex is basically what I'm getting at. Which is interesting because we were talking about Sammy's book, you know, just before he started the podcast, which I've read thoroughly enjoy. Recommend. It's called Red. It's almost like a gospel of Van Halen. Like, here's my take on what happened, you know? And then you get it from different perspectives. Sure. And as we get into part three of our uh, series on Eddie Van Halen, we will uh, discuss that book in, in, in some way. So. I look forward to it. All righty. Well, now, if you were listening to part one, which we hope you did, of our Eddie Van Halen series, we went from his early life growing up in Denmark all the way up to the recording of Van Halen's self-titled debut album. And we're going to pick things up right there. That album, which was recorded in a matter of weeks for a relatively low cost, dropped on February 10th, 1978. Essentially, Warner Brothers was dropping a giant bomb on the musical landscape. One that bounced up from a keg stand, snorted a rail of toot the size of an oak tree, and strutted <laughs> toward a limo with a pool in the back full of naked gymnasts. <laughs> that sums it up. Now, Didn't you say that they recorded the entire album in a matter of mere hours? They did uh, their first demos with Ted oh, Templeman. They did 25 songs in two hours. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, which is bonkers. Yeah. Now, the image I just painted you of <laughs> toot and gymnasts and all that kind of fun stuff sounds extremely outlandish it's an outlandish analogy is it a trifle but excessive it, it it seems a trifle excessive but but i offer it up as proof that nothing can out outlandish van halen as it was unleashed on the world both in terms of its debut album and the first tour they set standards for 
on-stage antics and backstage hedonism, perhaps only rivaled by the likes of Led Zeppelin and The Who and maybe Freddie Mercury. Van Halen wasn't the M&Ms, right? I thought they were. Yes, they are. Yes! Yes, they sure are, and we're and, and I think I think we get there in this episode. Actually, awesome. That that debut album went gold within three months and was platinum before the end of the year. Woo! Van Halen was taking the first steps toward being the big, biggest band in the world, and Eddie was already being hailed as the new guitar god. Quote: When I heard the sound of Eddie's guitar, just the pure sound he made, it was magical. I never knew a guitar could sound like that. It just kind of reached out and grabbed me like nothing else had before. Alex Skolnick, who went on to play guitar for Testament, told Louder Sound. Quote, the sound of that album was so alien to me that it might as well have been a spaceship flying over my house. It was a different <laughs> world, said extreme guitarist Nuno Betancourt. And interesting that I would mention extreme, but we'll get there later. Yes, we will. Quote, that album is just unfair to everyone. Eddie's innate musical genius ears combined with the athletic prowess he got from eight hours a day bedroom practicing, along with an indestructible rhythmic groove developed from jamming with his brother, results in a record of nonstop jaw-dropping awesomeness. That was said by Paul Gilbert, who would uh, go on to play with Mr. Big in later years. Now, and then, you doing the math at home, sorry, real quick here, Eddie is the fermented age right now of a mere 23. Correct. So he's, he's a baby. And this is what people are saying about a 23-year-old. And then finally, quote, he was to our generation what Hendrix was to his. He plays Eruption, and you go, shit, I never heard a guitar sound like that in my life. That quote was from the late Dimebag Daryl. Uh, oh, someone else we have to do. Eventually, yeah. And, and who, who Van Halen plays into his story Absolutely. significantly, uh, if, you, if you know much about him. Now, as per usual, critics seem to miss the boat a little bit. But in retrospect, the album is universally hailed as one of the best debuts in history. All Music's Stephen Thomas Erlewine called it, quote, monumental and seismic and said in a retrospective re review, quote, the still amazing thing about Van Halen is how it sounds like it has no fathers. Like all great originals, Van Halen doesn't seem to belong to the past, and it still sounds like little else despite generations of copycats. In 1996, Van Halen was certified diamond for having sold over 10 million copies. Jeez. It has actually sold considerably more than that now, but when the band parted ways with Warner Brothers, the company would no longer submit their albums for verifications of higher sales, but it's now estimated that first Van Halen album has sold 17 million copies. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Van Halen's first tour would be as the opening act on Journey's Infinity Tour. Hey! hey. I know Journey. Yeah. They would get a half-hour set followed by Montrose, minus Sammy Hagar. They by can't the point. Yeah. Right. And then the headliner's Journey. The first show was on March 3rd, 1978 in Chicago at the Aragon Ballroom which is apparently sometimes called the Aragon Brawl Room because of the tough crowd that it sometimes attracts. Hmm. The lighting director's headset didn't work, and there was almost no room on the stage, but it marked the band's first show outside the state of California. Oh, oh wow. A few nights later, the group was bumped from the bill at Madison's Orpheum Theater because the stage could not accommodate the equipment of all three bands. So Van Halen played a club gig at the Shuffle Inn. They then went back to their hotel, the Sheraton, and destroyed the entire seventh floor. Oh, oh not just wow. the room. Not just the room. No, no, not, no, 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 not just a room. That's for amateurs. <laughs> this is Van Halen. They destroyed a floor. The entire seventh floor, gone. <laughs> they threw telephones, tables, 
couches and televisions out the windows into the snow below. Oh my god. They had fire extinguisher fights in the hallways. Alex super glued and vaselined every doorknob. Ah, that takes And then they blamed the considerable damage on Journey. Nice. <laughs> so they stuck you Steve gotta, Perry with the bill? Hey y'all, you, you gotta watch that Steve you gotta watch that Steve Perry now. He's a troublemaker. Just look at his hair. Oh my god. I can't like that's worse than Keith Moon, because at least A, he kept it to one room and B, he took up, you know, he was like, Hey, I, yeah, I did this. He took pride in his work. I think it's hilarious. I, I, it does bear mentioning that Van Halen <laughs> gave a shout out to the seventh floor of the Sheraton Hotel in the liner notes to Van Halen 2. Hey, there you <laughs> go. After it had been rebuilt. <laughs> yes. As they played night after night, Van Halen was absolutely laying waste to the stage making them increasingly difficult to follow. Journey guitarist Neil Sean, who would go on to be friends with Eddie, said that he was actually glad that Montrose played between his band and Van Halen. <laughs> Quote, I was glad I was not following Eddie out there, even though, you know, I had my flaming moments too. We were all on fire, but Ed was like coming out of uh, left field at the time, and nobody knew what in the hell he was doing with that tapping. Only getting a few hundred bucks a night for the tour, Van Halen often stole Journey's food. <laughs> Classy. Wow. What um, was their oh, deal? Like, why were they so against Journey? Well, they bumped. Well, it. Oh, we're, oh, oh, it gets much worse. The, oh, the journey, the journey disrespect and, and slander gets much deeper here in just a minute. Well, well, real quick, if, if you had to pick, brawl breaks out. Who's winning, Journey or Van Halen? Oh, Van Halen. Van Halen. <laughs> I, I think Van, Van Halen. Halen. Yeah. Um, because apparently, I don't think it's a good idea to, to mess with Alex. Yeah, I feel like from what I've read, and it. just looking at Michael Anthony, he looks like he could stomp somebody's ass. Yeah. And, you, and you've got Dave as the front man right now, right? Right. I feel like he could kick really hard. D Dave Probably so. Fair. Dave wouldn't fight fair, so. I think he also studies martial the martial arts. So. Oh. See, so he's like he's like tiny and wiry. You don't and know later in life, randomly decided to move to Japan and study. Was it the samurai arts? Did he really? What? <laughs> yeah, didn't didn't speak Japanese. Had no relatives there. Knew nobody. Just moved to Japan. That's <laughs> so Dave. And I think studied like sumo wrestling. I don't think he participated in it. He's not, you know, he's a little too light in the bucket for sumo wrestling. But um, yeah. But I think like studied like swordsmanship and stuff like that. All right, Tom Cruise. He's led a very interesting life. A roadie from that time said that the constant trashing of dressing rooms and hotels left Journey a hair intimidated. <laughs> just, just, a, just a hair. Just a hair. They further irked the headliners by having their very minimal crew hand out backstage passes to the best-looking women in the audience. So by the time that they would play their set, the party was fully on backstage for Van Halen. Sort of creepily, many of those good times were captured for the sake of posterity or maybe blackmail or something by manager Marshall Burrell, who was the nephew of Uncle Milty. No what? This Wait. was Van Halen's first manager, yeah. Wow. And so he was filming them? Uh... Yes. Burrell had signed or managed some of the biggest acts ever, including the Beach Boys, Ike and Tina Turner, and Credence Clearwater Revival. For whatever reason, he filmed lots of Van Halen's exploits, including dalliances with girls backstage. Dalliances, you say? Ooh. 
He had hours and hours of film of band members, mostly raw, demonstrating a different sort of tapping to lots of young ladies. I'm sure Dave was happy to uh, conduct this, this uh, seminar. Yeah. Yes, but believe it or not, this little subchapter actually gets a little bit weirder. Burl transferred those romps to VHS and held a private screening of them for the mostly female audience of staff at the Warner Brothers Burbank offices. Huh. Wow. Well, well, didn't the Go-Go's kind of do the same thing? Was the they, There is apparently a video of <laughs> them. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they did a private screening of it for people that worked at their record company. <laughs> yeah, that's a very odd... Noel Monk, the band's road manager in 1978, who became their manager in 1979, said in his book, Running with the Devil, the women were quote, predictably and understandably horrified, that being the women that worked for Warner Brothers who had to watch Dave do his thing. <laughs> Be Dave. <laughs> he claims that Roth took possession of most of the recordings and that Burl actually gave him one for some reason, which he said he tossed in a box, never watched, and that will never see the light of day. <laughs> he also relayed that at some point during the tour, Steve Perry of Journey, was actually hit by a bowl of guacamole that Eddie hurled at Dave backstage during a food fight. That is amazing. And that he went to the bathroom and cried as he cleaned himself up. That is Perry amazing. recently said that the part about him getting hit by the guac was in fact true, but that he did not cry. He said the guac got all over his satin tour jacket and he was pissed. And to um, be fair, Eddie was aiming for Dave, correct? He was aiming for Dave, sure. He said he and Journey had actually begun showing up early to the shows to watch Van Halen and that he had actually gone to their dressing room to tell them what a great show they'd done that evening. He said, quote, they sounded like Led Zeppelin meets punk rock. They were truly that powerful. Hang on. So he ended up, he was like, hey guys, want to tell you how great you are. And then in what I can only describe as a Beastie Boys fight for your right to party moment, he ends up with guacamole on his silk jacket and he's angry. Uh, he <laughs> yep. Silk tour jacket. Yep. He said it was his, he, it, that, that was the jacket that made him feel like he'd arrived. This is my satin tour jacket. It says Journey, Infinity <laughs> Tour on it. And uh, A-Hole's got guac all over it. <laughs> you know what the best thing is, though, is if you could find that jacket today, it would be worth so much money because it has a guacamole stain from Eddie Van Halen. That's true. That was, <laughs> that was aimed at David Lee Roth. There's a story there. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, uh, Van Halen also opened for Black Sabbath on some European dates that year. The Ozzy Osbourne era of that band was starting to come to a close, and their performances were reportedly being inhibited pretty badly by drugs and alcohol. They'd had a very bad experience on their previous tour, as they brought al uh, along a young group from down under named ACDC to open for them, and actually had trouble following them. They were so good. So Ozzy apparently instructed Sabbath's booking agency to, quote, get some L.A. bar band to open for them. <laughs> and he did. And, of course, that band was Van Halen. <laughs> Whoops. No. Uh -huh. The members of Sabbath showed up to catch the tail end of their opening act at Sheffield City Hall. They arrived just in time to see Eddie perform Eruption. Quote, we sat there going, that was incredible. And then it finished, and we were just too stunned to speak, Ozzy said. Tony Iommi's reaction? Bloody hell. <laughs> or, <laughs> or probably, or probably, <clears throat> bloody hell, bloody hell. Um, bloody hell. Yep, you just need to stop doing any kind of next act. I'm <laughs> we, sorry, we, we apologize. I gave you, I gave you a flyer and skipped do, trying to do Ozzy, okay? I mean, all you got to do to do Ozzy is Sharon! Ozzy admitted 
Uh, Ozzy admitted that it was nearly an impossible act to follow. When the tour reached London, Iommi convinced his buddy, Brian May, to come check out the new guitar phenom. Hey. Quote, the pair of us watched Eddie Van Halen do this stuff, and it was just glorious, almost too glorious to take in. To see this guy romping around a guitar like a kitten, just running and taking it to places undreamed of. There hadn't been anything so shocking since Hendrix, May said. Wow. Which, I'm going to say if Brian May compares you to Jimi Hendrix, you're probably doing pretty good. I, I will yeah. correct you and say Dr. Brian May. Dr. Brian May. It is interesting and quite telling that Eddie was not enjoying the ride at this point. Monk said that Eddie told him on a tour stop in Paris, quote, I want to go back to L.A. I don't want to do this anymore. F and Dave, that asshole. He wants to be a rock star. I don't want to be a rock star. I hate this bullshit. Wow. Monk apparently talked him off the figurative ledge by telling him that a lot of people were counting on him and reminded him that success would allow him to buy his parents a house. So that's how he basically kept Eddie from leaving at this point, he says. Now, those shows were all powered by copious amounts of not only alcohol, Southern Comfort, vodka, and malt liquor were the beverages of choice for the brothers at this point. Oh, my. But also cocaine. Yeah. And there it is. Cocaine. Yes. Ooh, cocaine. Yeah. Managers apparently greased the palms of local law enforcement officers on tour stops to look the other way. Not a shock. The band actually coined a code word for the substance, that being krill. Krill? They call cocaine krill. Interesting. Okay. okay. It was during this tour that Van Halen pulled off one of its most elaborate and brilliant stunts. Black Sabbath and Boston were playing in an event called Summerfest in Anaheim in September that would also feature a fellow named Sammy Hagar, by the way. Hey, that guy. It was a, it was a huge show with an audience of 56,000 people. Ooh. Van Halen was opening, and they were determined to steal the show with more than just their performances. When it came time for them to take the stage, an announcer said, from out of the sky, Van Halen is coming into the stadium. At that point, fans noticed four parachutists heading into the stadium, looking as though they were going to land on the stage. At the last minute, they maneuvered to an area just outside the stadium. Moments later, Van Halen emerged to a thunderous ovation. They tossed off their parachute ga- uh, gear, took the stage, and launched into On Fire. Initially, Van Halen management claimed that the band had spent months practicing the stunt, but quite obviously, Eddie, Dave, Alex, and Michael did not jump out of an airplane. <laughs> Correct. <clears throat> Pretty sure Warner Brothers wasn't going to allow such a thing to happen. No way, yeah. It, it, it was, in fact, four experienced parachutists wearing wigs. The band was hiding in a van outside the stadium wearing parachute get-ups. Now, they did have a few Spinal Tap-ish moments on the road, including, at one point, having all of their equipment shipped to Chicago when they were booked to play a huge festival in Texas. Yeah, Oops. but but, uh, but not the band Chicago. <laughs> not the band Chicago, no. City Chicago. City of Chicago. We're just going to keep up abusing bands of the 1970s and 80s. I mean, why not go for Chicago? Why not throw Chicago in there, sure. They ended up having to borrow equipment for that show. (laughs) They also briefly fronted for the Motor City Madman, Ted Nugent. Really? His reaction to Eddie was pretty much what every other guitarist was. Quote, this effing kid started playing shit I'd never heard before, and I was like, oh, I think I'm a bad MFer. But there may be an element of me sitting on my bad MF and laurels. He was unbelievable. He was one of those rare, gifted musical warriors that could literally kick the shit out of his guitar with his feet. 
And somehow he'd make it melodic, musical, and rhythmic, Nugent oh, said. Ted Nugent, that's the smartest thing you've ever said. So he's All he's, told. He, if you can't tell, I don't like Ted Nugent. Okay. I don't know. I, I, I think that there are never truer words spoken than wango tango. Wango tango. <laughs> now, now, what's interesting is he is basically flooring every major guitar player he meets along the way. I mean, yes. Did he ever, was he ever, like, I'm just, I'm, I genuinely and, know this. Was he ever in a room with Stevie Ray Vaughan? I don't know. That that would be fascinating. I, the, the Earth didn't spin off its axis, to my knowledge, so I don't yeah, think so. Because I feel like but, if, you put, if you put him and Stevie in the same room, the world might yeah. actually explode. Him and Brian. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah but, but you're you're right, Will. When you have people like Tony Iommi and Ted okay. Nugent and Brian May lauding you and saying, I, I've never heard anything like this. That does pretty much, that does speak volumes. 100% it does. Yeah. All told, Van Halen played 174 dates in 10 months. Oh, not even including, in a year. Do what? Wow. wow. In less than a year. In 10 months. That included 124 U.S. dates, two shows in Canada, 39 in Europe, and nine in Japan. Just a week after wrapping up the tour, they were back in the studio to record their second album. Wow. Using some songs that they'd already demoed previously, Van Halen 2 was completed in one week. Are you Released kidding in, me? Seriously? Yeah. Van Halen 2, which which is a, a freaking masterpiece in my opinion, they knocked it out in a week. I've had hunks of meat that have taken longer to pass through my body. <laughs> yes, I've had hunks of meat stuck in my teeth for a week. Yeah. <laughs> VH2 made my my top three albums. Yes, in our life. it was my it was my second ranked one. If people heard our our album ranking in the last episode, released in March of 1979, it went gold or platinum in four countries and has sold more than six million copies to date. Oof. In a retrospective review, Earl Wine gave it four out of five stars, noting it was a bit lighter and funnier than the first record, but contains quote some of the grandest hard rock ever made. It reached number six on the U.S. Billboard album chart. And it contained the band's second top 40 hit, which we're going to get to in just a little bit. But I want to open with something different. Now, to the extent that Van Halen has many deep cuts, since almost all their songs are, are very well known and continue to get a lot of recurrent airplay, this album contains one of my absolute favorites. In fact, this is one of my favorite Van Halen songs, period. I, I love this song, so we're going to listen to it now. This is a, a banging cut from Van Halen 2 called D.O.A. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> 
And we're back. I mean, going back to that conversation about complete albums, that's one with very little fat. I mean, it's just yes. top to bottom, solid. Yeah, that, that's great. And that song, I, I love songs that have a quality where they sound like the wheels are coming off, the engine's on fire, and they're swerving between ditches. Yeah. <laughs> and there's something about that song, it just feels like it's going to come unglued at the end. The little tempo changes and, and stuff. Alex is in, like, in, in absolute killer form on that song. The so drums I, really stand out, but but of course Eddie, every song you listen to, you just go, "Good Lord!" Anyway, so uh, that was DOA, one of my absolute favorite Van Halen songs. Period. Will that's a great one. Yeah, um, everybody is in top form, Eddie especially. Now Van Halen went right back out on the road, so they toured for ten months, did 172 shows, went to in the studio the next week, spent one week recording Van Halen two, and then we're back on the road. Unbelievable. For the most part, this time they would be a headliner instead of an opening act. They shared a bill with Aerosmith at the California World Music Festival at Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. That would be a show. Holy Where, crap. Is that the one near the Science the Center? Center? Yep, the Coliseum. That's the Science yep. Center, right? That's the, I've never seen a concert there. I've seen a concert in a lot of places in Los Angeles. It's the one place I haven't seen that I actually have wanted to just check out. Can you imagine that bill? Yeah. Aerosmith? Oh, my God. Fucking wow. So they're playing with Aerosmith, big outdoor stadium, big big football stadium show, and they had another elaborate prank planned. They parked a Volkswagen Beetle on a landing visible to the audience. Now, the plan was to have it announced multiple times, quote, will someone with the Aerosmith organization please move their car? <laughs> when it was time for Van Halen to play, they would crush the VW Bug with a World War II era tank. <laughs> park it near the stairs, emerge from the tank, and proceed down to the stage. Wow. They, so this was to the point that they had actually obtained a tank and were practicing driving it. Who was driving they, the tank? I think <laughs> they. <laughs> Probably David. <laughs> I think it was they. I, I think it was they. So they had, so, so Van Halen had a tank. <laughs> Lord. We, um, we missed we missed so much being uh, well everybody missed that one unfortunately because Aerosmith got wind of the prank and they planned a counterpunch they were go they were going to run stock footage of airplanes blowing up tanks for the duration of Van Halen's concert <laughs> they went with the prank. so the boys had to settle for just playing a blistering uh, set instead so I hate to do this but we have to take a short break for our sponsors and we will be right back and we are back. Okay, let's jump back now into the life and times of the great Eddie Van Halen. Now, among the 65,000 people in attendance was a young fan named Saul Hudson. Hey. Does that name sound familiar? It sure. You likely know him better as... It's Slash! Slash! Yeah. It's Slash! It's my second favorite guitarist of all time. In 2017, he told Up Rocks, quote, I subconsciously knew that rock and roll was entering into a new era as a result of this great new band. They were really powerful and alive, and there was a palpable rush of excitement the moment they hit the stage. That first experience seeing Eddie play has stuck with me to this day. Wow. The band also had its highest charting single to date during the tour, hitting the top 20 with the song Dance the Night Away. Mm. Now, this is a much different sounding song than anything we played in part one or in the song that we've heard so far. So this is a little bit of a departure. So let's see how you guys like this. This is their first kind of sort of stab at a little bit of a ballad. This is Dance the Night Away. <laughs> Dance 
standard. And it's a great song. A little yeah. different from most of what's on their first two albums. But I, I saw uh, an interview with Eddie once where he said something like, uh, where when people would complain about ballads or something like that, he's like, I mean, you know, every song I write doesn't have to... <laughs> <laughs> Every like every single thing I write, it's okay if I write something that's melodic or poppy occasionally. I think. Well, I think people had been burned before by one little band called Kiss, who did a song called Beth. Right. And the funny thing is, I do believe I I love Beth. I love Beth. Also, I think it's one of their best-selling songs of all time. I think it outsold Detroit Rock City. So I'm just going to say, you know, Nickelback is popular because somebody's buying their albums. <laughs> sure. Somebody well, but he said, I, he basically was making the argument, like, I'm not going to apologize because occasionally I write something that's, you know, melodic and a little poppy. I don't think yeah. there's anything wrong with that. And we also uh, were, were talking as that song played and decided that the idea of David Lee Roth driving a tank sounds like a deleted scene from Stripes. Okay. <laughs> I want a time machine and just to go back to that one moment. Me too. Forget um, Keeley Plaza uh, in in 63. I want to be there when Dave concocts the idea to drive the tank. Because you know he's coming up with this stuff. Uh, this had to be. Uh, that, that is, that's totally Roth. You know it was. We're not going to get into uh, an area that w- you've covered, oh, 50 or 60 times on Rock and Roll Heaven before. Van Halen was packing arenas. They were selling millions of records. And they were broke. Yep. yep. It's a very common theme, but eager for stardom and a chance to have their music heard, they had signed a horrendous deal with Warner Brothers. They got 70 cents per album. Whoa. So that's- for every album sold, they got 18 cents a piece. That's actually better than a lot of the other deals we've covered on this show. I'm yeah. not saying it's yeah, a deal. <laughs> but the deal also forced the band to pay for a mountain of expenses like printing and, and other things out of that already meager share. Yeah. At this point, despite having two platinum albums, they owed Warner Brothers $1 million. What? Go yeah. F yourself in the barn. What? Yeah. Making matters worse, the company had the option to re-up the band to that same deal every two years for life. Nope. Ooh, get a lawyer in there. Jeez. So the band jettisoned Burl and they hired road manager Noel Monk, who we mentioned earlier, as their new manager. His first order of business was, was to get them out of that terrible deal. Yeah. Thank so he he flooded Warner Brothers with paperwork of all kinds, expense reports, information requests, legal questions, literally anything he could think of to send them in paper form, he sent them. Uh, in that blizzard of paperwork, the company missed the deadline to re-up the band. Nice. Well done. Not a stupid so, guy. No. So he announced that Van Halen were now free agents and were ready to walk. Nice. So Warner Brothers was forced to renegotiate, which made the band instant multimillionaires. And that guy has got a job for life. Yeah, that guy's a hero. Actually, he doesn't, but we'll we'll get to that a little <laughs> bit later. He also made the decision to take Van Halen's merchandise sales in-house instead of being contracted out, as was standard at the time. Most bands then saw about a quarter per t-shirt sold at a concert. Okay. When they were at their height, Monk said Van Halen could pocket up to a quarter of a million dollars in merchandise sales alone from larger shows. Wow. And you had those shirts. Yes, I, I've st- I still have one, which maybe we'll put a picture of, of that up on the I socials if I can yeah. find yeah. it. Now, obviously, Monk benefited financially, too, but l- let me tell you, he was 
totally earning his money. Roth apparently got so out of control on at least one occasion that the road crew actually put him in a straitjacket. <laughs> um, on an airplane, <laughs> on an airplane, Dave stuck his head into an already overflowing toilet and puked for the duration of a flight. Oh my lord! He said that Dave would sometimes smoke a joint and vamp in front of a mirror looking at himself for hours. <laughs> During the European tour with uh, with uh, Black Sabbath, he apparently got in a cocaine snorting contest with Ozzy Osbourne. Oh no. Which, that sounds like an absolute fool's errand. He just joined uh, Stevie Nicks and it's over. That sounds like me challenging Secretariat to a foot race. <laughs> You challenged Ozzy to a cocaine contest? Are you out of your mind? Are you nuts? Come on, Dave. I don't even know where you get enough cocaine to have a contest. Right. And who calls the contest? Right. <laughs> Alex was a very heavy drinker, and Monk recounted an occasion when Alex came into his hotel room early in the morning, <laughs> snatched up two bottles of vodka, and downed them both in one gulp. Ooh. He oh, then God. drained at least a half dozen other full bottles of liquor and was so completely blitzed that he became delusional and started seeing things, namely penises. Well. Quote, big penises, giant effing penises coming out of the wall. Wait, that is a direct quote from Alex Van Halen? Yes. Huh. Big oh, penises, boy. giant effing penises coming out of the wall. So to answer the question of how much do you have to drink before you start seeing stuff, it's just ask, vodka. ask uh, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> ask Alex. I'm going to say that if you see penises coming out of the wall, you've perhaps crossed a drunk threshold. <laughs> that I've never been to. You're another dimension. That's, you are. That's right. not a threshold. You're in a different, yeah. you're in a different time zone. Oh, oh time. hey guys. The whole hey time. guys. Speaking of penises, <laughs> Monk said, quote, a river of penicillin had flowed through most of the band. <laughs> he claims that Dave at one point had him tell his girlfriend that he had the clout. Oh and, and so and so she did too. <laughs> <laughs> Love means that, never having to tell you I've got the clout. Yeah, is that was that his contract? Whatever that guy is getting paid, you double it <laughs> yeah, and say right. thank you. Oh, get that guy a watch, man. Jeez. Oh. Still, Monk and Van Halen uh, Monk said Van Halen was somehow on its game every single night and was the best live band that he'd ever seen. How is that possible? I don't understand it, but I'm okay with it. Yeah, but the pattern of album tour, album tour continued as Van Halen came off the road and into the studio to record their third album, Women and Children First. The album was finished in two weeks. So they really labored with, they really labored with this one. No wonder the studios love these guys. They're in and out like they were never there. Yeah. Released in March of 1980, it featured a bit of a different sound than its two predecessors. There's a bit less emphasis on the background and harmony vocals, and it's a lot more heavy in some respects, and with a few more overdubs. Okay, now can I offer you a fun fact? Fun fact! Fun fact! The album Women and Children First contains a song called Could This Be Magic? It features the only female voice to sing on a Van Halen song. Huh. Singing background on that is... Nicolette Larson. She had some country hits, I think, in the 80s, but you would know her best from Gonna Take a Lot of Love. That one. Um, our audience can't see <laughs> what our facial expressions are over here. Uh, but, for television. but just so you know, they're blank. Neither of you remember a lot of love. Giant penis is coming out of the wall. 
Manfred Mann's Earth Fair. Been- Thank you. There it is. <laughs> I actually had it built in later, but there it is, ladies and gentlemen. The federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band. I, I do. I do want to hear what you said. Larson should have sang a song called "Giant Penises Coming Out of the Wall." <laughs> Maybe it was a B side. I don't know. Giant penises. With the other hit, Dave, you've got the clap. <laughs> <sighs> oh, he's he's done tickled himself. Yeah, there were also on this album no covers for the first time. We don't have to it, at this point. Like you're a band, right? But but on the first one, you know, they had you really got me and Ice Cream Man. Van Halen Two had you're no good, which had been made, I guess, popular originally by Linda Ronstadt. And, and to be fair, their covers are really good. Yeah, they're really good, and and you're no good bears very little resemblance to any version of that you've heard before. Oh, no, it's totally different. Uh, now, Women and Children First only had one hit single, that being And the Cradle Will Rock, which got to number 55. And can I offer you another fun fact? Fun fact! Yes. The sound you hear at the beginning of And the Cradle Will Rock is not Eddie playing the guitar. Really? It is, it is Eddie playing a Wurlitzer through his giant wall of martial amps. What? To get that distorted do 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 song or sound, yeah, huh. yeah, that's Eddie playing like an organ th- through his giant, scary wall of martial amps. Wow, like a Back to the Future style wall of. Yeah, pretty much. But that's but that's what you're actually hearing at the beginning of that, which I didn't know until I started doing the research for this episode. Huh. Album also had some concert staples like Everybody Wants Some, which a few years later would memorably be featured in the movie Better Off Dead. When it was performed by a claymation cheeseburger. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. Uh-huh. The album went platinum, selling three million copies, and it was generally well received critically. Reviewer Robert Criscow said, quote, Eddie earns the Hendrix comparison, and he's no clone. He's faster, colder, more structural. Earl Wine said the album sounded a tad more serious than the first two records and said, quote, there's a bit of a dark heart beating on this record. So let's listen to a fan favorite from the album uh, Women and Children First. This is a concert staple. This is one of the heavier songs in the Van Halen catalog that I can think of. This is Romeo Delight.
Van Halen, Romeo Delight. Now, that, that sounded like perhaps one you weren't super familiar with, LD. It's not, but again, it's it's uh, it feels like the same kind of got a bad, got a bad, I'm hot teacher, that kind of which, same which kind we're of, getting to. That, that same yeah. kind of energy to it. Yeah. I like so, it. I did like it. I like it a lot. Van Halen launched the Dave's Dirty Lap and the Giant Wall Penis Tour. <laughs> <laughs> not really. If that was a tour <laughs> short, that'd be awesome. They launched the uh, World Invasion Tour to promote their new album, and that would include a fateful stop at Hirsch Memorial Arena in Shreveport, Louisiana, on August 29th, 1980. A pair of brothers were at that show tonight, uh, that night. Huge Van Halen fans, they hoped that their sister would be able to get them backstage. Now, you might be able to imagine how some young ladies might have gone about getting backstage at a Van Halen concert. Boobies! Yep. But they weren't they weren't being super creepy, and, and nor were they pimping out sis. Their sister was noted TV actress Valerie Bertinelli. Huh. They saw her as a walking, talking backstage pass, essentially. The One Day at a Time actress wasn't just along to do her brothers a solid, though. She was apparently quite taken with Eddie, and she wanted to meet him. Monk said that after the show, once Eddie had dried off and changed his clothes, he introduced him to Bertinelli. Eddie was only somewhat familiar with her work, but Monk said, quote, they were both clearly nervous. This struck me as a sign of pure chemistry. She spent most of her life in front of a camera or audience. She was completely comfortable with all manner of public interaction, and yet here she was, stammering and blushing like a schoolgirl in the presence of the captain of the football team. And Edward, here was a guy who went on stage every night and performed wizard-like in front of thousands of adoring fans. In the presence of this young woman, however, the rock star facade melted away. A whirlwind romance commenced, and Eddie proposed on New Year's Eve, 1980. Okay. They were married on April 1st, 1981, at St. Paul the Apostle Church in Westwood, California. Oh, okay. I think I might know where that is. It being Van Halen, though, there is, of course, a little bit of debauchery involved in the story. Of course. When Eddie and Valerie went to meet the priest who would perform their ceremony, both of them were in possession of vials of cocaine. Wow. <clears throat> Monk said at the reception, though, the two disappeared for a bit. He claims he ended up finding them in a bathroom where a weeping Valerie, still in her wedding dress, was holding Eddie's hair as he hugged the porcelain. On the night of the wedding? Yes. Wow. During the brief uh, courtship of the two, a woman also brought forward a paternity suit against Eddie. He swore to Monk that the only thing that happened between he and the woman was her wetting his whistle, we'll say, while he drove down the Pacific Coast Highway. Okay. Monk said that Eddie, who was described by most everyone as being a bit naive and kid-like, which is actually pretty typical of geniuses and prodigies, if you think about it, asked Monk if she could possibly have gotten pregnant that way. (laughs) That actually led Rolf to tell Monk that he wanted to get paternity insurance, which was a thing that did not exist. (laughs) Quote, I need to protect my penis, Dave allegedly said. (coughs) Monk went through the motions of calling Lloyds of London... (laughs) but said that they laughed at him and hung up (laughs) still still a van halen publicity man put the story out that roth had a one million dollar paternity insurance policy and the press ran with it that is fantastic and it started to feed the, the idea that this was this crazy band this ungodly hedonism and the drugs and the and the sex and all this craziness. And it, th- th- this just builds the mystique, sort of, that they actually put that out as a real story and, and people picked it up and ran with it. There's a bit of a misconception where Valerie is concerned. Now, the public knew her mainly as the somewhat goody-goody character Barbara Cooper that she played on One Day at a Time. And she was seen as kind of the good girl to the 
bad girl Mackenzie Phillips, who had some very public substance abuse problems. In her later book, Losing It, however, Valerie admitted to partaking in drugs with her co-star. So it isn't as, as though bad boy Eddie corrupted her. There, to me, there, there seems to be this idea that like she was this, this sweet little innocent girl, and then she hooks up with this, this naughty rock star, and things went terrible. It's kind of like with Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston. Why with- she was this, she's this, why she's this sweet angelic character, and then she's with this horrible bad person who does this like, yeah, no, she all, she was already doing stuff. Yeah, think- <laughs> in both cases, as it turns out. Um, however, while she was not um, a drug virgin by any stretch, she was a novice next to her husband. When Van Halen was on the road. Eddie had a cocaine dealer who would fly anywhere in the world to meet him and provide him with the finest Peruvian booger sugar money could buy. Guy's dedicated. Wow. The entire band, quite famously, drank on stage, including large amounts of Jack Daniels. Sitting on amps alongside much of Alex's booze, though, were lines of cocaine for Eddie to do. Oh, it wasn't even for him. Wow. (laughs) Yes. He also drank a lot. He talked years later about the fact that his father had drinking issues and he sort of passed them on to his sons, and not just through genetics. There's a story that a very young Eddie was bitten by a German shepherd and that his dad's remedy was for Eddie to smoke a cigarette and have a drink. Huh. <laughs> well, I guess that could work. Smoke and drink was also the means by which he told his sons to prepare for performances when they were younger. And Jan would drink, and not just like a beer or glass of wine, with his two sons. When they were in their teens. And like you said, we're talking drink, not like you said. They're, they're drinking, drinking, right, with Dad. In her book, Valerie also admitted to having an affair about four years into the marriage. And that Eddie, Eddie claims that she actually strayed before he did. Now, Monk's book would seem to contradict that. He said that when Valerie joined the group on an early tour, Eddie had been cavorting with groupies. As Valerie joined a card game involving the wives and girlfriends of other members of the Van Halen entourage, she apparently noted that she found it odd that she and Eddie had only had sex once since she'd gotten there. She apparently then did a line of toot as the ladies played cards and said, quote, Eddie likes me skinny. Here's the thing. It was the 80s, and I feel like I feel like on on New Year's Eve at 12.01 on January 1st of 1980, instead of bringing, uh, bringing in the new year, the new year brought in a lot of toot and just gave it to everyone. Right. And, and if you liked it, you liked it. And if you didn't, you still did it. So right. everyone in the 80s, just all the cocaine. Right. Eddie would actually have Valerie stay in an adjoining room on tour so that he could stay up all night drinking, smoking, doing cocaine, and playing his guitar. He said that those things enhanced the creative process with coke giving him energy and keeping him awake and alcohol loosening up his inhibitions. Valerie said when he did so, he was in his own world. Now, that seemed artistic and appealing at first, but became a problem as time went on. Eddie claims that after shows, Dave and Alex were the ones who went and chased girls. He would drink vodka, do cocaine, and stay up all night playing guitar. Mike Anthony, already married, uh, apparently did not engage in pleasures of the flesh other than with his wife. Aww. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, from what I've read. Nice. Yeah. Now, some tension was starting to build within the band. For starters, there was Anthony. Now, Eddie is almost universally recognized by everybody as a genuinely nice person with the word, quote, sweet being used just over and over and over. What a sweet guy Eddie is. Yeah. But that was apparently subject to change at times because of his substance consumption. Various stories said that he often poor-mouthed Anthony's playing, who everybody seems to agree is one of the most genuinely nice people that there is, Mike Anthony. And he actually talked to Billy Sheehan about replacing him at one point. Who Eddie did? Yes. <clears throat> David Lee Roth, per Monk, 
used to openly talk about the fact that he wanted to date a Hollywood actress because of the attention it would garner. When Eddie, who really didn't want that much attention to start with, actually did marry an actress, there was some jealousy involved. Bertinelli wrote in her book that she overheard Roth say, quote, that effing little prick, not only is he winning all the guitar awards, he's also the first one to marry a movie star. Aww. Well, that's all about Dave. I mean, who's right. Yeah. As I've said before, I like Dave and you like Dave, but nobody likes Dave like Dave likes Dave. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> right. Eddie also tired of Templeman's live approach in the studio, wanting to be more creative, take more time, and experiment more. He was also starting to chafe at Dave's singles first approach to songwriting. And all that seems to show itself on the band's next record, that being Fair Warning. Mm-hmm. Released in April of 1981, it was by far the darkest record that the band had done to that time. Much of the party vibe and the occasional whimsy of the first records was absent. Earl Wine called it, quote, a dark, dirty, nasty piece of work and pronounced it some of the hardest, fiercest work that the band had produced. Eddie found a go-around of Roth and Templeman having engineer Don Landee meet him in the studio at 4 a.m. to re-record parts of songs. He said that everybody was so checked out musically that they didn't even notice that he would make the changes. Huh. Oh, wow. Yeah. The album hit number five on the chart and had a few songs do well in the mainstream rock charts. Unchained became a concert staple. But there was no hit, per se. And Monk said that it took a lot of promotion. Now, you could read that as money and drugs to DJs to uh, get airplay and to get it selling after a strong debut week. It was ultimately the lowest selling album of the first Roth era going just double platinum. So we're going to hear something from this one now. And this is very much something that almost stands alone in the Van Halen catalog to me. There's, there's not, there's nothing else that sounds like this one. The band actually claims that this is their attempt at a quote (laughs) reggae song. Although it sounds nothing like any reggae song I've ever heard (laughs) in my life. What it sounds like is a really nasty funk rock tune. This is Push Comes to Shove. And there were nine in stunning victory. 
That was Van Halen and Push Comes to Shove. Now you were saying that that one was not your favorite LD. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that one as much. What I was saying was, and here's, it, don't, don't get me wrong when I say this. It almost sounded like Don Henley, but, okay. but, but I, I like Don Henley. I like Dirty Laundry. I even like Sit Down and You're Rocking the Boat. But it sounded like later Don Henley. It, it was um, that. There's a little bit of a funk groove. Almost kind of a slow dance groove to it. Yeah, not my favorite. Oddly. I still, I still. And I, I pick, and I, and there are better known ones on that album, but we, we have some uh, all-time favorites coming up here very, very shortly. So I, I figured we'd do a little bit of deep cut diving uh, on on um, uh, Fair Warning. Yeah. Uh, now, when Van Halen wrapped up the tour for Fair Warning, the band wanted to take a break and take some time to work on new material. But Roth had an idea to stay <laughs> in the public consciousness. They could record and release a single, likely a cover, as a standalone release. He suggested that they cut Dancing in the Street, but Eddie said he couldn't come up with a good riff for it. So instead, they did Oh, Pretty Woman, the old Roy Orbison song. Yeah. And here is a fun fact. Fun fact! The video for that song, Van Halen's Oh, Pretty Woman, <laughs> which featured two little people groping the legs of a woman who was tied up to a pole, being rescued by the band with Eddie playing a cowboy, Alex portraying Tarzan, Mike as a samurai warrior, and Davis Napoleon, only after a call to them to rescue her by a hunchback, was among the first videos to be banned from MTV. Because it sounds like a joke from a Spinal Tap movie? <laughs> Part, well, partly because it was revealed at the end of the video that it wasn't a woman that was being groped by the two little people, but a fairly popular Los Angeles drag queen. Huh. And then also, just think about what I just explained to you. Yep. Yeah. No, it's not. It's 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 so much to unpack that I'm just gonna leave it by the door for a while and then deal yes. with it like a week or two. And just note, this all started with Dave had an idea. Yeah. Right. As, 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 as
Fortunately, and, fortunately and unfortunately, the song became a big hit, getting to number 13 on the Billboard pop charts. Warner Brothers wanted to cash in and demanded a new album. So the band, who wanted to take a little bit of a break and actually take time working on some new material, had to hustle into the studio and spent 12 days recording the album Diver Down. When are they writing this stuff? In the middle of the night? Well, in this case, they didn't have to write much. It featured five cover songs, <laughs> three short instrumentals, and only four full-length new songs. And it was apparently the least favorite album in the band's catalog by Eddie Van Halen. Oh, so that's the actual sound of a cash grab. Yes. yes. Oh, okay. Well, down is. well, if anybody if anybody heard part one of our Eddie series, when Will and I debated r- ranking all of Van Halen studio albums, I had Diver Down as next to last, and I said it sounds like a hastily conceived grab bag. And the reason it sounds like that is because it's a hastily conceived grab bag <laughs> that, they, that they were forced marched through because, you know, the record company got greedy. The four original, like, new full-length songs are all really good, and it would have been cool to see what that album could have sounded like possibly if they'd had time to actually finish it yeah. instead of having to cut another kink song and dancing in the streets and happy trails and a couple other things. It probably sounds like whatever their next album was. Possibly. And, and, and the next one's and the next one is a big one as we lead up to that. However, whatever I might think of this album and whatever Eddie might think of it, it's his least favorite in the Van Halen catalog. Cause he said, I'd rather have a bomb with my own song than a hit with somebody else's. It hit number three on the Billboard album chart and sold double what Fair Warning did, going quadruple platinum. Ooh, wow. We're going to play one song from that, and this sounds absolutely nothing at all like anything you've heard up until now. When he was at his dad's house, Dave found that if he stood in a certain spot in a certain room, he could pick up a, quote, weird radio station from Louisville, Kentucky on his Walkman. He heard a song written in the 1920s called Big Bad Bill is Sweet William Now. So he recorded it on his Walkman. He took it to the band and they all agreed, quote, this is bad. Let's do it. (laughs) Dave then suggested, quote, hey, we can get your old band to play the clarinet. Apparently, Dave actually had quite an affinity for Jan Van Halen. He he actually really liked him. And I think the, the feeling was somewhat mutual from what I read. By this time, Eddie and Alex's father had lost a couple of, of bottom teeth, and he had had a finger severed in an accident. Ooh. Much like his younger his youngest son, though, he modified his instrument to be able to continue playing. They sat on stools, Eddie with a Gibson hollow body, Mike with an acoustic bass, Alex got out the brushes, and Jan with the clarinet, and this was the result. Van Halen's Big Bad Bill is Sweet William Now. Somehow, 
called sweet Bob Willie did. Stronger than Samson, I declare, till the brown skinned woman bobbed his hair. Big bad Bill don't fight anymore. No, no, no. Doing the dishes, mopping up that floor. Yes, he is. Barely used to go out drinking, looking for a fight. Now I gotta see that sweet woman every night. Big bad Bill is sweet. songs on it but you know i think it's what let, not quite a half hour long and it's five covers and three instrumentals and you know whatever <laughs> it actually became a bone of contention because eddie had developed this little moog riff and i've read two different versions one said he wanted to give it to peter gabriel who he apparently was a fan of or he wanted to craft a peter gabriel style song around but david lee roth and templeman ended up convincing him to use it and you hear it on their remake of Dancing in the Street. And that, that Eddie stayed mad about that for, for years. Really? Years and years. Decades later, he was still mad about that. Huh. That it got, he felt, got wasted on a remake that he didn't even want to do instead of an original song. Because he, he was really proud of that little riff, that little... And if you've heard their, their version of Dancing in the Street, you know the one I'm talking about. I think it's the one that, that opens the, yeah. That, that opens the song, right. Yeah. yeah. He, was, he was like crazy mad over that being used in that song. Oh, but wow. yeah, so if we're talking about the Van Halen era, this era of Van Halen in particular, there are a few things that will obviously have to be mentioned. The first, the infamous Eminem contract writer. There it is. Now bands have all manner of contract writers that can include instructions for the setup of the backstage area, 
sound and light requirements, up to what sort of food and beverages that the band wants to have backstage. Buried deep in all Van Halen concert contracts was a writer stating that they must be provided with a bowl of M&Ms with all of the brown M&Ms removed. I mean... If any brown... If any brown M&Ms were found, the band could cancel the entire concert at full expense to the promoter. Wow. <clears throat> but that, now, that's, that's an, okay. This, this is a story I know. You can't be mad at the band. Right. Because if you didn't read the writer and they saw the brown M&Ms, it was a visual representation of the fact that they didn't care about things like safety or right. lighting setups. That, that's 100% That's 100% what this was actually about. It Now, it seemed like the height of rock star excess and self-indulgence. And this is one of those stories that kind of adds to the band's mystique, you know. Oh, man, they, they make them give them M&Ms and take out all the brown ones. That's so awesome. But Rolfe later explained there was a practical reason for the demand, and you've just touched on it. Van Halen would load massive amounts of equipment into arenas, many of which were older and not built to accommodate such. So if great care wasn't taken, beams could snap, floors could buckle, and everyone in the arena could be placed at risk, including the band themselves. So to ensure that promoters read the entire contract, the brown M&M clause was born. If they found brown M&Ms in the bowl, they knew that a full line and safety check was in order. And just to prove a point, Dave would destroy their dressing room. <laughs> like, let's take care of the safety stuff, and then Dave, do your thing. Yep, yes. Dave. Okay. Uh, tank through this place. Now, once the band went out on world tours as a headliner, if you've ever heard about their code system, that was a real thing. They yep. designed they designed their stage setup specifically so that they it would enable them to pinpoint attractive women in the audience for roadies to try to snag and get backstage. Now, I thought that was I don't know who did it first, but I I understand Def Leppard employed a similar tactic. Yeah. They did employ a similar tactic, but like Van Halen had it set up where like left front, like the left side of the stage was quote green. And then the first section was one. So they'd be like green one, green one, blonde, yeah. row three. Like they had a code system set up to where they could pretty easily pinpoint for roadies which lady they wished to cavort with backstage if she wanted to. And they had it down to a science. They had it down to a science, and Dave actually devised an incentive program for Herodes, who secured him the best-looking women. <laughs> not, not surprised. Not surprised at all. Uh, in 1983, Van Halen was signed to do the US Festival in California, which was a huge multi-day event put on by Steve Wozniak. The Guinness Book of World Records would verify it as the highest sum of money paid to a band for a single performance as Van Halen collected $1.5 million for, for their performance. For a single show. For a single show. Wow. The band was recuperating for a, from a lengthy world tour behind Diver Down. The band's equipment was still on a boat somewhere, so equipment and rehearsal space had to be pulled together. Dave actually had to be located and returned to America from the Amazon jungle. Wait, what? <laughs> David decided to take a, a little vacation to the Amazon. I feel like... <laughs> Their trajectory has been mapped out via a Mad Lib. Right. <laughs> this week, Very much so. in, insert plays here. <laughs> right. Hundreds of thousands of fans would pile in for the show, which while a four-day festival that featured everybody from Waylon Jennings to the Divinals oh, became all about Van Halen on the festival's heavy metal day. The band spent 500000 of the $1.5 they were paid on their two-hour set, which included custom-made Van Halen Us Festival merchandise. MTV was there broadcasting live. The world would be watching. Dave would be interviewed by MTV's Mark Goodman wearing a fishnet shirt and holding a bottle, I think, of Jack Daniels. 
When asked if he'd heard any of the new music Eddie was supposedly producing, a, cl- a clearly very drunk Dave said, quote, I don't know what he's been producing, man. You'd have to ask Val about that. Huh. Um, okay. He then pronounced that the show would be a cakewalk and said, quote, I can do this shit in my sleep. I believe that. I do believe Dave, that. Dave wore a giant codpiece during the performance <laughs> and came out for the encore wearing a pair of assless chaps. Of course. Now, he received a giant wave of publicity for the performance, but that demonstrated another major difference within the band. Eddie said the entire thing was a pain in the ass, and he didn't think that their performance was very good. Mm-hmm. But but suddenly, Dave is riding a big wave of popularity because of the outlandish antics that he put on that were broadcast for the world to see at the US Festival. Wanting less, quote, interference from Roth and Templeman, Eddie built his own studio called 5150, which was California police code for criminally insane. Mm-hmm. There... He could explore working with keyboards and synthesizers, which both Roth and Templeman balked at. Roth had this idea that, oh, dude, if we play keyboards, then people are going to associate us with the, quote, new wave tribe. And that's not us. We're not new wave, man. We're a rock band. And Templeman was less opposed, but he said, if, if we're going to have keyboards, you know, the, the, the solos have got to be as fierce as Eddie's guitar solos are. And Eddie just wanted to experiment a little, which, you know, most good musicians do, and, and play with some different sounds and things. So... He built his own studio. Which brings up two interesting points. One is you look at this uh, creative direction. and Who's really driving the bus? Is it Dave or is it Templeton? I would argue it's probably Dave. Yeah. and Well, I I think as as we kind of start to see as how the music ends up coming, I think it's Eddie. Well, that's the other thing is based on what you've said about the keyboards and him wanting to like experiment is knowing what comes next in their catalog. Right. It's it's interesting foreshadowing. So sure. Yeah, it most definitely is. So in this new studio, 5150, he could explore working with keyboards and synthesizers and anything else he wanted to. Now, unlike all their previous albums, which at most took a few weeks to record, the album 1984 took one full year. Commercially speaking, it was worth the wait. The album has been certified diamond for sales of at least 10 million copies and is now estimated to have sold 17 million copies. It's one of my all-time favorite. Yeah, anyway. My, uh, mine too, absolutely. Not a clever nickname. No, he's actually, yeah. Yeah. And the videos for every single became heavy rotation staples on MTV. Yep. Now, I wrote the, uh, most of the script a couple of weeks ago, and I stumbled on a little story today that I just thought was amazingly interesting. I guess this would be an extended fun fact. Fun fact! Extended. Young... Yano Anaya played Grover Dill, the toady of Scott Farkas, in A Christmas Story. But he also portrayed Michael Anthony Jr. in the Hot for Teacher video, which I did not know that until today. Nope. Uh, Now, he was actually a huge Van Halen fan, and he called the four-day shoot, quote, a blast and said, quote, it was awesome. He said he will, quote, always remember the kind-heartedness of Eddie, Alex, and Michael, not so much Dave because he was in his own world. (laughs) Do you remember now, the video for that? Uh, yes, I do. And he said that he didn't just want to sit in his trailer while shooting went on. He actually wanted to meet the band. He was an, an enormous Van Halen fan. So he went and knocked on their door. Alex Van Halen opened it and invited him in. Aw, and then they did he said that He said that the trailer was a mess with food and booze everywhere. Alex then invited him to play a drinking game. <laughs> pull, pulling out a couple of Schlitz malt liquor tall boys. And a $100 bill announcing that whoever drank their beer the fastest would get to keep the hundy. Alex beat Yano, who was 13 at the time. 
<laughs> and Anaya said that in the scene of the video where they're dismissed from school and they proceed down the steps to the waiting hot rod that Dave is driving, he was incredibly drunk. <laughs> where are your parents during all this? Like you don't just you don't just go, okay, bye, honey. Have fun shooting a video with for ben four Halen. days with right. Van Halen. Well, and I thought this was really cool. On the final day of shooting, Anaya asked Eddie if he would play Eruption for him. He's like, sure, man. He goes back in the back, pulled out his guitar, and plugged it into a little baby amp. And, dude, I'm literally sitting two, three feet away from him, and he plays Eruption right there in front of me. That's wow. pretty awesome. So they actually, he actually said that Eddie, Michael, and Alex were really nice. I mean, why wouldn't you think of uh, a grown man who's giving you malt liquor at 13 isn't nice? Yeah, that's all upside. And then there's not, the- not just not just giving him a sip of it, giving him an entire Schlitz malt liquor tall boy and challenging him to which is, which is laying a hundy on the table. Bet you can't hold your liquor, kid. Come on. <laughs> I wonder if they tuck him in. Did they tuck him in that night? <laughs> uh, I, I, well, uh, somebody probably had to. Um, <laughs> this- that's from the, a side story from 1984. The album sold has estimated to have been sold about 17 million copies at this point. The reviews were overwhelmingly positive, including from Guitar Player magazine, which did not seem bothered by the ample use of synthesizer on songs like I'll Wait and Jump. The latter became the band's only number one single on the Billboard pop chart. So we obviously cannot make it through this podcast about Eddie Van Halen without hearing it. So from 1984... Here is Van Halen's only number one pop hit single ever, Jump. Yeah. 
Okay, so there it is, the, the biggest, quote, hit in Van Halen's career, jump. And, you know, obviously, Will and LD, they have started to play with keyboards at this point and some synthesizer. It's still a great rock song with a great, with a great solo in it. Is it bigger than the song that we're going to talk about, which is also driven by piano? Oh, no. Actually, that, I guess that one actually would uh, have surpassed that one. And we'll get I to would, that here in just a second. Yes. No, wait, again, new era, new day. I know, yeah. I know what my favorite Van Halen song is. It's not the one you heard earlier. Well, that's my new favorite one. <laughs> my favorite Van Halen song of all time is not actually Dave. It's Sammy? actually Sammy. And that's right now. Well, that's that's what I was talking about, which we're that's, gonna get to. That's cause... my favorite Van Halen yep. song, and it was okay. it's such a good music video too. The, the sun is about to set on the Dave era, I believe. Yes, we're very we're very near the end of of the Dave era at this point. Now, the year 1984 was among the biggest ever for blockbuster albums. So let's play a quick little game, guys. Yay! Which of these was not a number one album that year? Michael Jackson's Thriller, <laughs> the Footloose soundtrack. Huey Lewis in the News is Sports, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, Prince's Purple Rain, or 1984? 1984. Ding, 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 ding. Van, Van Halen's album, which was a mammoth smash, sat at number two for weeks and weeks and weeks behind <laughs> Thriller. God. Well, if you're going to get dethroned by somebody, I'm sure. But, didn't, but that, that also means that, Luke. in a sense, Van Halen was kept out of number one by Eddie Van Halen. Yep. Oh, yeah. He was actually enlisted by Quincy Jones to play guitar on the song Beat It. He did not want to be credited and did not accept payment, taking apparent, uh, supposedly a case of beer as compensation. Huh. Now, he claims that Michael was not in the studio when he was there and that he not only played the guitar solo, he actually reworked one whole part of the song entirely. Wow. Huh. Um, Monk lost his mind telling <laughs> Eddie to get credited and get at least half an album point in terms of compensation, which would have equated to millions of dollars. But Eddie just said he wanted to do it. Quote, why, I why, like Michael. Why didn't he what? just say, Eddie, if you get a point on the back end, you can buy so much cocaine. I know, right? <laughs> he said, quote, I like Michael Jackson. Monk remembers Eddie saying, quote, well, you can like him and still take the effing money. Monk <laughs> And, and Eddie, Eddie's comment on it was, eh, it was 20 minutes of my life. I didn't want to be paid for that. 20 minutes! 20. So there was apparently, right, there was apparently a bit of anger in the Van Halen camp that Eddie might have inadvertently helped keep 1984 out of the top spot on the album chart, a spot that the band had never reached. Oh, wow. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Thriller was actually dethroned by Footloose. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? There were only the the album titles I read you are the only ones that hit number one that entire year because there were so many that were had long runs at wow. the top. So I'm actually not sure which one not Thriller out, but I think it might have been Footloose. So Van Halen had never hit; they'd never had a number one album. Crazy. And a song, an album featuring Eddie Van Halen, in their mind, kept them from getting number one. And Eddie had not told the band that he was doing it. And Dave, in particular, was uh, was starting to get a bit resentful about that. Eddie had scored a TV movie that Valerie was in, and he had done the same for a Cameron Crowe film. I also learned today, now how this flew by the three of us baffles my mind, that Eddie recorded an EP with Brian May in the early 1980s. Bonkers. Called the Starfleet. And it features the two of them on one song that we would play were it not 12 minutes long. 
it's 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 them just doing like an homage to Eric Clapton, just trading blues licks back and forth. Ugh. And when you hear it, you will realize, wow, these two dudes can play anything. And didn't it's not would... just it, they're not just stylists. It's not just Eddie doing the tapping. It's like no, 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 no. Either one of them can play anything. They're this... phenomenal guitar players. In the last episode, didn't you say Clapton was the only influence Eddie Van Halen cited? Right, correct. Yes, and that he could play note for note every solo that Clapton played in every Cream song. Bonkers. Dave, because of all this, felt that he should be entitled to seek out solo and side projects himself, including acting. There were some other conflicts as well. For one, there's not much way uh, to say this other than the band members were starting to get really greedy. Dave, Eddie, and Alex took a contract to Mike Anthony right before a concert and ordered him to sign it, which would deprive him of royalties oh, from the enti- band's entire back catalog, and I think from future recordings. And their argument was that he contributed very little to the songwriting process. Of course, at that point, Alex didn't either, but there's no way that that demand would have been made of Eddie's brother. Yeah. Monk said that the move was among the most disgusting things he'd ever heard of in a later interview. Sammy Hagar, who would later become a very close friend of Anthony, said that he would have told the band to, quote, go F itself and would have walked out leaving them with no bass player for that night's concert. Yeah. I mean, no offense, I would have. I would have been like, I'm out. I'm gone. (laughs) Yep. Still, Anthony, who, who, again, by all accounts, is a very nice guy who didn't like making waves, signed the contract. Now, no one seemed to be getting along at this point. Dave said things like, quote, I've always been a show-off, but I've always had something to say. I will express myself through other avenues, just so long as I'm famous, so long as the spotlight's on Dave. That's about, that tracks. Yeah, yeah. that's, yep. yeah. Um, yeah. That's what he Nailed said about no the notes. possibility of leaving the band. Dave started to complain about the length of Eddie's solos, saying, hey, man, we're, we're a band. This is supposed to be a, you know, a group thing. And Eddie would say, F you, your raps are getting longer. <laughs> Alex said, quote, individually, we were far apart. It was like night and day. We were never together, although it looked like we were from the public's standpoint. From what I read, Eddie and, and Dave studiously avoided one another. Pretty mm-hmm. much they were together when they were on stage, and that was about it. Ralph's behavior on stage had always been showy and kind of preening, but it was starting to veer into nasty territory by this time. He would sometimes point at guys on the front row and say, hey, buddy, after the show, I'm going to F your girl. Aw, that's so sweet. (laughs) Oh, Dave, you big softy. (laughs) That's so Dave. (laughs) Dave would lambaste the band and road crew after shows for what he perceived as mistakes. And at this point, you also have to figure that drugs and alcohol are certainly not helping matters. Dave oddly began employing two little people as part of his security detail. Wow. For reasons for reasons known only to Dave. <laughs> and made perfect sense, I'm sure. I'm sure, in his world. They closed out with a sol- with a couple of sold-out shows, actually, at Reunion Arena in Dallas, then played five dates abroad on the Monsters of Rock tour. Dave spent late 1984 recording a solo EP, which featured four cover songs called Crazy from the Heat and released it in January of 1985. Fans started to worry that the band was in jeopardy. Dave appeared on Late Night with David Letterman, and said that as far as Van Halen went, he fully expected the band to be in the studio and working on a follow-up to 1984 later in the year. Van Halen would be in the studio then, but David Lee Roth would not be with it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we're going to end this episode. Aside from the fact that, as we discussed in the first episode, Van Halen is the ultimate 
drunk guys argue about them banned in part one. Will and I somewhat debated, but uh, basically just gave our rankings of all the Van Halen studio albums in order. Uh, we both had the first, the first, we, we uh, were in agreement on number 12 and number one. Which I think most people are. I, I don't. <laughs> yes, I don't, I don't. It's all those in between that it gets hard to parse out sometimes. So uh, in our next episode, we're going to have the ultimate Van Halen debate. But for this one, we're going to, uh, I mean, next, next time is like bare knuckle crap. Seriously, like wear a cup and a mouthpiece and the whole bit. Yeah, but but this one a little less a little less controversial. Does um, the cup go for me as well? I would. Just I think so. Yeah. Okay. You got to watch out for them wall penises. <laughs> <laughs> Never know what a wall pecker is going to get you. <laughs> a plaster pud. <laughs> and he has done. Said nobody himself. until today. <laughs> a drywall weenie. Okay, that was my last one. <laughs> This is going to be a little bit of a less controversial topic and, and not a very long one. Van Halen has not the, the most extensive catalog. It's 12 albums, but you have to figure about 10 songs per album leaves you with about 120 songs-ish of you know original studio cut material. There are always going to be some songs that get left behind, that get overlooked. You know, Some were released to singles, some weren't. Some, to this day, get recurrent radio airplay. To this day, there are, there are some Van Halen songs I have literally never heard played on the radio anywhere in my entire life. They have some overlooked gems, is what we're getting at. That's our opinion. So Will and I are just going to run through, each of us, uh, our top five underrated Van Halen songs. And uh, Will, you can go first on this one. Yeah, am I, I just doing top to bottom? or? Sure. Okay, so I, I did have throw in an honorable mention for six because I feel like it's known. It's not quite, and, and I have to give it up to Van Halen 2, Spanish Fly. Yeah. That is just such, oh, love that guitar. Love It just, oh, that one I had to just give honorable mention. I couldn't take it away. Um, and the, 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 an interesting thing about that song, if I, if what I read is correct, because as we discussed in part one, you, you have at least played guitar song. You, you can speak with some degree of knowledge about guitar. I am a moron when it comes to music, <laughs> instruments, playing anything. I, I know nothing. But from what I read, he is basically demonstrating his two-handed tapping technique on an acoustic guitar. Correct. In, in that, which is, is much more difficult to do than it is on an electric guitar because there's much less sustain. Yeah, and you can't move as quickly along the neck either. So, yeah, you right. you got to hit harder, too. So it's no For him to get the, to capture the sounds that he did on, on, on that song is pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, so that's just a great one. I feel like a lot of the sure. fans know that one. You know, the, the, the deep cut, you know, kind of song. And he would, he would often include that in part of his extended solo in concerts, I think. Usually he would, yes. That's yeah. what I understand. Um, so I'm going to go to uh, the original Van Halen album. This one, again, with so many gems. I feel like this one just gets left behind. It's gotten some airplay, but not a lot. You actually played a TJ in our last episode, and that's Show Your Love. I adore that. Oh, album. what a great song. In every way, shape, or form. Again, I just feel that it's outshined on an album where everything is just pure gold. Something's not going to shine as bright. And unfortunately, I feel like that's what... And it shouldn't be that one. It no, really shouldn't. That's one of my favorite songs on that album. It's one of my favorite Van Halen songs, period. Yeah. Period. And the, the whimsy of breaking up this this fierce driving solo with barbershop quartet doo wop stuff. It's right a in the middle. breakdown. You're like, wait, are they doing, they're, they're doing this, yeah. Uh, next one actually comes from the 1984 album, as we just mentioned. Again, easy to get brushed aside in an album that's just pure greatness. I'm going with House of Pain. Ah, oh, good one. Yes. Very, very good one. I'm going with House of Pain on that one. 
and I, I and I think that's another case where there are so many giant smash hits on 1984. Because I mean, you, you're thinking Jump and Panama and Hot for Teacher, and, you know, and I'll Wait. That those the the other songs kind of get forgotten. That whole album is really strong. It's a great album, and like I said, when everything is is that bright, something's gonna get lost in the shuffle. I feel like that was it. Uh, the other one I have does also come from that album, Highly Overlooked, Drop Dead Lights. Yes, another great one, absolutely. Again, I, I had ranked the 1984 album as my second favorite, second only to Van Halen, and that was just amazing. So I think the detour I'm going to take now for my final two are going to be appropriate for what we're covering next as we do, again, close the chapter on David Lee Roth and bring in a new talent here. My first one is coming from the For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album opening track, Pound Cake. I know yeah. it's not usually a favorite one by fans. I also know that most people would look at this album and pick the second song, Judgment Day, which is a great song, but just the opening, just power on the song. And this is really, I think, where Sammy came into his own with the band, was that album specifically. Right. And I think it's no more clear than on that opening track of Pound Cake for Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. I'm going to stick with that to close it out with an Overlook track on Appropriately, the namesake of the studio you mentioned, 5150, and that is the title track, 5150. Wow. This remains one of my Van Halen, favorite Van Halen. Van Halen blah, 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 blah. Uh, <laughs> this one remains one of my favorite ones, period. 5150 is one of my favorite albums. I bought it on cassette. I think I still have it at the house somewhere. No, you and don't. Your mom probably, my mom probably got rid of it. Your mom probably got rid of it. Uh, <laughs> but um, it's such a strong song. And there's so many good ones on there. I think Summer Nights is great. And, yeah. And, and the the, fun, the thing is, is for some reason, people think of that album as being really ballady. And I'm like, well, yeah, on the songs that were released as singles, but there are some banging songs on that one. 5150's Killer, Summer Nights. Great song. Yeah, just one after the other. I like Inside. The, the, just the whole thing is is really good, and there are some some heavy heavy rockers on that one. Oh yeah, and I can um, see where the ballad and fifty one fifty is one of my favorite ones on there. Yeah, absolutely, that is just a solid one. So those are my overlooked Van Halen songs, at least oh. now. That's my list. Okay, <laughs> now I actually made a list of uh, because Will and I did not confer about these in advance to make sure that we didn't. You have a bunch of repeats. I actually wrote 10 down, so I'm just going to skiffle through a couple of them. I had little guitars. Oh, nice. Uh, from, from Diver Down, Dirty Movies. That uh, is I think a good is, one, yeah. Yep, is, is a, a kind of an overlooked song, in my opinion. I put the A, a Political Blues on there. I, I love that track, yes. From, no from OU812. Mm -hmm. First of all, to my knowledge, it's the only cover song that they did in the, the Hagar era on a studio album. I want to now say they covered well, they covered won't get fooled again on right here right now live but in terms of studio songs I think that's the only remake that they ever did I believe you are correct that I can think of and it's a really obscure one I mean that was an old little feet song but the reason I like it it almost it feels almost like a throwaway on first glance but if you really listen to it there's a really cool bluesy riff on that that Eddie's playing that that shows you some depth that he that he's that, that like we talked about earlier on that project he did with Brian May, he's not just one thing. He can do a lot of different things, and that that is a pretty nasty little blues riff he he rips off on that song. And I do think this is the era where we do see that versatility come out a little bit more. Like you said, with fifty one fifty OU eight one two, you start seeing these different shades of Eddie's style, and I think it's it's going to be a lot of fun to cover. 
Yeah. Uh, I had House of Pain on my list too. Great one. 5150, I had that one on on my list as well. I picked a different one from For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. I I went with The Dream Is Over. Oh, unconventional. I like it. Big, big, chunky riff, but really melodic too. Yeah, absolutely. That's the cool thing about that album to me. That is a a really, that is a hard rock album. Probably the hardest one they've done in a while. But they're also, but the but the harmonies are still there, and the really melodic stuff is still there, woven in between giant scary guitar riffs, <laughs> which I'm a big fan of. Of course, I put "Could This Be Magic" okay on my list. Uh, that's one from Women and Children first. It is because Women and Children is a big heavy album. It's it's actually heavier, much heavier and darker than the two albums that preceded it, and then. Uh, like next to last song, here's this disarmingly pretty little acoustic ballad with with all the, the harmonies and stuff. It's just a really pretty song, and as we learned earlier, the only Van Halen song to feature a female background vocalist, which I was not aware of. I, I was not previously either. Uh, then I went with another one from Women and Children uh, in a simple rhyme. It, it pretty much is a summation of Van Halen. Mm. It's it it is crazy amazing guitar work. Very well-written song, lots of lush harmonies. That one is actually lyrically a little different for Dave because the the preening and the the tough guy and the showmanship stuff is gone, and he's actually bummed that a girl dumped him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that that makes it a little bit different, but I just really like the song. I put feeling on there from Balance. Oh, wow. Good choice. Because for for a couple of reasons, that primarily, I'm just going to say, Sammy absolutely sings his butt off on that whole album. Yeah, Sammy he, shred, he shreds it on that song. And it's a very different guitar tone that Eddie has on those. And again, I'm, I'm not a musician, so I don't know how to explain this stuff very well. But it's just a little cleaner. The fuzz is, is gone. But the, but the riffs are, are much heavier and more, more metal-esque to my yeah. untrained ear. I, I think you have a lot of influence there of also what was going on. Because that was the same time period you had like Queensryche and Dream Theater and Nirvana and, and Nirvana so you have that heavier but melodic tone to it and that uh, that album is a little uneven in places I, I really like some songs some just kind of lay there but I, I really like that I've always really liked that song the last one there's not a need for us to discuss it a lot because we talked about it earlier and played it DOA I think that is my number one <laughs> DOA is a great song Love yeah it. okay so I guess LD will throw out our socials and then we'll close with uh, one last song uh, yes, and the reason why I did not take part in that debate just now is that I am not well-versed enough in Van Halen's catalog to know what is considered underrated. So, because I know all the greatest hits, and I've got the ones I like, but, you know, I couldn't talk about deep cuts like these guys can. So, there as you go. Yeah. So, if you guys think we're doing a good job and you'd like to toss some coins our way, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on Twitter for a wonderful debate on all kinds of stuff at uh, rock and roll LT. Our Instagram is rock and roll heaven LT and our Facebook is rock and roll heaven pod. And, um, and hit us up if you've ever seen a penis come out of the wall. Yes, please let us know. I don't need to know that. <laughs> you can address all that to hey TJ or will the thrill. Don't at me on any kind of <laughs> penis-related stuff, guys. In okay, the- okay. Well, if, if not that, then you can at least kick us your idea of, of what your favorite underrated Van Halen song is. 
Okay, that that's, will take. that's acceptable. Please don't send me anything with dicks. Don't make her afraid to open her DMs, guys. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I want sliding into my DMs is pictures of chocolate cake. Because that's cake is good. Cake is good. That I'll take. I'll take pictures of cake, not penis, which is a, a, an underrated game, cake or penis. It's kind of it, like cake is or it death, really? but yeah. kind of like cake or death, but you know, with more penis. But different. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, but completely different. I am still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And please, guys, make sure you check out all the other Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. Because I was like today old when I realized that you don't have to write www anymore. Like that's not a thing anymore. Nope. No, it's not. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed the first two parts of this. Part three is really interesting because we obviously have a gigantic change, actually more than one in the band. And some of the people who were candidates to replace Dave, I didn't know. And they are fascinating. There are some good ones um, in there, yeah. So there are some really good ones in there. So that that's really cool. And th- there's a lot going on. So I hope you'll join us for that. Now, I'd actually decided to leave the last song totally open to my brethren on the other end of this Zoom call. Ah. Uh, would you like to play Hot for Teacher or Panama? Ooh. We're, oh, closing I out, we're closing out the Dave era. This is closing out the 1984 era. Oh. We, we played Jump already. What would you like we to hear? Played, we played deep cuts from some other albums. So we kind of want to kind of stick with the hits on this one and those were two big ones or or i'll wait if you if you'd rather i don't particularly love that one but that, i'll leave it up to y'all we already had the story about it so i feel like we kind of have to hear it yeah we've had a story related to it we have to tie up that loose end am, am i doing it <laughs> yeah i think you're doing it okay i'm doing it doing uh, yes guys thank you so much for listening to this episode make sure you check out uh next week's episode for part three of mr eddie van halen and uh bye yeah See you next week. Bye, everybody.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 